after Trump everyone from John Kerry, anyone else he perceived as a problem for him, to be gone after. And it definitely feels like Barr was willing to do it. This is expert to DOJ on Trump. Return an indictment against someone who's been priming in light of day. MSNBC, kind of a, a strange uh, title, but this is Glenn Kirshner of Justice Matters. And, yeah. Yeah, Bill Barr is on his reputation rehabilitation tour. And, <laughs> frankly, any time I have somebody who committed a whole bunch of crimes and they've never been held accountable for those crimes, and then they start to say a whole lot of good stuff about the crimes of others and they're all about accountability, I'll tell you, as a prosecutor, I never wanted to hear anything they had to say unless and until they took responsibility for their own crimes, typically what that looked like is pleading guilty and becoming a cooperating witness, then I'm prepared to listen to you. But before Bill Barr is held accountable for his, until he's held accountable for his crimes, I'm not that interested or persuaded in anything he now says, you know, that seems to be damaging to Donald Trump. And I do think the Jeffrey Berman book confirms what we all know, that Donald Trump and Bill Barr weaponized and corrupted the Department of Justice to punish Donald Trump's critics. Nobody knows that better than a guy like Michael Cohen, who, when he yes. said he was about to criticize the president, yes. he was put back into prison by Bill Barr's Department of Justice, and he successfully filed the great writ, the writ of habeas corpus, and a federal judge in New York said you were just punished by your government for your First Amendment free speech rights. That is horrific. And, and just, there's all these concentric circles of sort of chicanery around Trump, right? So you've got Barr, who auditioned in a memo saying, please, sir, put me in, coach. I'll make sure I take care of you as AG. Then Trump puts him in and he does take care of him. Then you've got Bannon, who's running the ultimate grift on Trump supporters, basically treating them like marks. They clearly have no respect for these people, stealing their money to fake build the wall. Um, and then you've got Trump doing the same thing. This is a news New York Times piece. A federal grand jury in Washington is examining the formation of and spending by a fundraising operation created by Donald J. Trump after his loss in the 2020 election as he was soliciting millions of dollars by baselessly asserting that the results had been marred by widespread voting fraud. So-called Stop the Steal was a giant grip just like everything Bannon did and just like everything Trump did. Does Trump go the way of Bannon for doing the self-same thing? You know, maybe, Joy, and this might sound surprising coming from a former career prosecutor, sometimes I want to scream, enough with the new investigations. I mean, yes, we have to investigate all of the crimes of Donald Trump, but this new investigation, you know, is the big ripoff, as uh, Representative Lofgren labeled it, with respect to basically stealing money courtesy of his PAC. Um, is that going to distract us from the investigation into his theft of classified documents, which seems to have distracted us from his uh, launching an armed insurrection uh, against the Capitol, which seems to have distracted us from his election fraud in uh, Georgia, find me 11,780 votes and all of that joy certainly distracted us from his bribery and extortion of President Zelensky, his 10 counts of obstruction of justice as documented in the Trump-Russia report, his campaign finance crimes with Michael Cohen at the beginning of it all that he used to steal the presidency. At some point, Joy, can we tell the Department of Justice to just finish what you started?
human condition. So, welcome back to the Christopher Gabinetti show. And it's a beautiful morning. It's 911. I'm going to do a special called Inside Job <laughs> today. Now, argue um, for the uh, indictment of the Bush regime, whoever's still alive, both Bushes, and because uh, it was an inside job, okay, it was obviously a fucking inside job, and if you don't want to, uh, that's understandable if you don't want to admit that. Because people don't want to, don't want to see the bad things and, you know, the negative things. They'd rather just look aside, turn the other cheek, in denial, go on in denial. How many fucking years are we going to commemorate the anniversary of 911 without, without acknowledging that it was an inside job? for a bike ride. I need a coffee, body, and a bike ride. Uh, I need to fix my bed. Mm. Human condition. Right, so uh, let's get on to, let's see what Amy's saying about um, 911. Human condition. I made a I made a song for um MSNBC. Okay. New tab. Yes, support indigenous uh, well, too, and independent journalism. Oh, this is from Friday. She doesn't do, this is uh, Sunday. Uh, okay, let's see what else, what, uh, what else is going on. This mm, page, top story, sub 911, putting things in perspective. Okay, free cremation cost guide, no thanks. Nine ten. Ooh. Three hours ago. Perfect. Special arrangements. This is legal AF. Streamed three hours ago. Hey guys, great job. Thanks for all you do. And what is Trump doing? We will break it down. A grand jury in Washington, D.C. has been issuing subpoenas regarding Yay. Trump's PAC, if you want to call it that, and other subpoenas Correct. to former top advisors like Stephen Miller and Brian 
blaming Jack on the fake elector scheme. A federal judge in the Southern District of Florida dismissed Donald Trump's absurd and frivolous RICO or racketeering lawsuit and essentially said as much in his order. It appears that Trump's lawyer, particularly Alina Haba, is going to be sanctioned and sanctioned severely. What a District Attorney in New York, Attorney General. joint execution for state law crimes for his involvement in the We Build the Wall scam. And a Trump judge in Texas rules that businesses should not be required to cover life-saving HIV treatment as part of the Affordable Care Act because their religious views allow them to discriminate against homosexuality. How dystopian and sick is that? And a new report shows that groups connected with Ginny Thomas were involved with the submission of 51% of the amicus briefs that were submitted to the Supreme Court, in other words, her radical right extremist husband, in support of overturning Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs case and ultimately the Dobbs decision. The most consequential legal news, this is Legal AF. I'm Ben Micellis, and I'm joined by Michael Popak. Michael, how are you doing this weekend? I'm doing great, Ben. It's it's really, you ended it the way we're going to begin it. It's just this dystopian view using the justice system as its, as its handmaiden, as its tool to um, put together the, this right-wing agenda. You know, we'll talk about Alina Haba, who's at the heart of the motion to dismiss against the Trump lawsuit down in Florida. And having seen her on television, we'll talk about that as well. We know this is all just a charade as a publicity stunt to raise money for the former, for the former president. And we're going to talk about money flow as it relates to Steve Bannon as well. So let's get to it. You know, one of the special master selections, we're going to give a more in-depth what this whole process is even about, though, but I want to say this at the outset, that the Department of Justice suggested to be the special master to review some of the documents obtained at Mar-a-Lago was someone by the name of Thomas B. Griffith, who was a retired circuit judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, actually a George W. Bush appointee. And he had written a report following the 2020 elections that basically said and applauded the courts for holding strong against all of the kind of lies and frivolous attempts to undermine our judicial system. And it's why, our, it's why we do this show. Our judiciary and our legal system is so important. It was truly the last line of defense, and it did hold up. So with all the dystopian stuff we're talking about, those are the attacks 
all sides, right, that Trump and MAGA Republicans, let's just call it what it is, are trying to attack and bring down our judiciary because it held strong in 2020, because facts and the rule of law prevail. And so that's why we do this show, to show that contrast, though, between this dystopian vision and manipulation of the law and when the law works and how we can preserve and protect our rule of law. So I just wanted to say that at the outset, when we talk about some dystopian stuff, the system has held. So let's get right into it, Pope. I can talk about the updates on the search warrant executed in Mar-a-Lago, of course, search warrant. Uh, was executed pursuant to a valid search warrant signed by a magistrate judge out of the Southern District of Florida, Judge Reinhardt. Uh, the search took place on August 8th. Um, a number of items were obtained in connection with the search warrant. We're learning that there were about 100 top secret documents, confidential classified records belonging to the government that were obtained thousands of other government documents which should never have been taken either and a very kind of small set of potentially personal documents belonging to trump and even a smaller sliver of a potentially attorney client privilege set of documents but under no circumstance under no one who's a fair arbiter of the law would you say that in connection with a valid search warrant executed the individual who's being investigated for the crimes should dictate how the investigators, how the Department of Justice, an arm of the executive branch, conducts their criminal investigation. And what the uh, judge, who Trump basically tried to forum shop to get, he really sought this judge out, and he supposed to be a random selection. You know, we don't know how random it is. The procedure sometimes for selecting the judge is somewhat cloaked in secrecy, but it's supposed to be a random selection. But after the August 8th warrant, he does nothing and then waits until August 22nd, files this motion for a judicial oversight, and essentially asking, hey, I'm the one being criminally investigated, judge, but basically appoint me to control how the investigation is actually boiling down, right? And I want to appoint a special master, in other words, an independent third party who can review these records. And he didn't really say this as much, but the judge basically said it for him, made the argument for him. And I want an injunction. I want to stop the government from doing its investigation because it would be utilizing documents which Donald Trump is claiming it belongs to him. Donald Trump's never claimed which documents belong to him. He's never denied that he has top-secret, sensitive, classified records. He's never denied the recent reports that some of those could actually be nuclear secrets of foreign countries. He's never denied any of those facts. He simply said, me, 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 give it to me. Um, the Department of Justice filed an opposition and earlier this week on Monday. To the surprise of many, although, to the surprise of most people who follow the law, the judge granted the special master request and enjoined the government. This happened on it's September 5th from continuing surprise. their investigation, their criminal investigation, to the extent it utilized and used those uh, documents that were obtained, including the classified records, which is basically an affront to our national security interest, an affront to all laws of criminal justice 
derailing a criminal investigation. And so then the ball was in the court of the Department of Justice to respond. And they filed a notice of appeal. They haven't filed the formal appeal yet, but they let the 11th Circuit know they're going to be appealing Judge Cannon's order. And what they also did, Popak, and I want you to break it down because it's a very sophisticated move, a motion for partial stay of Judge Cannon's order. And the motion for partial stay is a very surgical move, and it basically says this. Judge, you're wrong on everything. So we're going to appeal your order to the 11th Circuit, who we think is going to overturn you. But we know that could take time. And we know that Trump's trying to delay, delay, delay. And Judge, you may be trying to delay. So why don't we just focus on the 100 classified records? You want to go along with this special master charade? It's going to be a waste of everyone's time. But you want to go ahead with it? Go ahead with it. We're still going to appeal that because the whole order is fatal and doesn't make sense. But as it relates to the 100 classified records, those should not be subject to a special master, right? And those documents should not, we should not be enjoined from utilizing those records in connection with our investigation. And so they boxed Trump in because he has to now say, I own those records or I declassify those records or say something about that subset. So she ordered Trump to respond by September 12th there. She also gave an order, Judge Cannon ordered Trump to respond by September 12th. Judge Cannon also told the parties to meet and confer on this issue prior to their submission, which took place on September 9th, about who they would want to bring in for a special master and what the procedure would look like and to give their thoughts on it. And then late last night on Friday, the parties filed a joint filing about their disagreements over who the special master should be and what the procedures and processes should be. And the government said the classified document should not be subject to the special masters. Trump said the classified documents should be given to us first. We should look at all of the records and then we will tell the special master what the categories are. And then the special master can make decisions and file a report to the court on which documents should or shouldn't be returned or what the privileges exist if they exist at all. So that's the overall summary of where we're at. Let's delve into some of that, Popak, and let me turn it to you. Okay, thanks. So the way I read the, let's start with the appeal. The way I read the appeal, they're not actually appealing the entire decision. They've made a surgical decision, similar to what you and I talked about last week on the podcast about we knew they were going to appeal, but what were they going to appeal? And in boxing them in, as you framed it, or boxing her in, they're going to appeal two aspects, it looks like, of her order. And they're going to give her an opportunity to fix part of it. They're going to appeal the aspect of her order that says that executive privilege, A, is properly asserted by Trump and should be reviewed by a special master. They think executive privilege is off limits, not something that is properly asserted in this case over any of the documents, and certainly not something that a special master should be picking through as they go through these documents, whoever that special master is. And also they're appealing the aspect of the order that enjoins or stops the Department of Justice and the broader intelligence community, the IC, which includes the FBI, from using the documents, not just looking at them, but using them to progress their investigation, meaning documents lead to leads in investigations, which require interviews 
with cooperating and maybe not so cooperating witnesses. The way the order is written and the way the Justice Department has interpreted Judge Cannon's order, they cannot, without violating this federal order, follow up on leads. And one of the leads that they want to follow up on with, with um, uh, witnesses, Ben, is whether there are other classified and national defense and security documents located, not just within Mar-a-Lago. They're pretty sure they picked that whistle clean when they did the search warrant execution, but at other locations that you and I touched on last week that are in Trump's universe. His apartment in New York, his Bedminster Golf Club, other properties. He has properties all around the world. And by using current documents with, with uh, witnesses, doing a normal investigation, you'd be able to find out the extent of the national security and national defense compromise that it, which they're doing as an assessment. That's one. The second thing the Department of Justice told the judge in their filing is you have, inadvertently or on purpose, also stopped the very thing that you said that we could do, which is continue a national intelligence and global intelligence assessment, because the same people that would be assessing the compromise of the intelligence and of our diplomacy, national diplomacy, international diplomacy, includes the FBI. You can't separate them. There's no bright line to, di to divide up these, these reviewers of documents. And so you may have not have wanted that, and you said that in your order, you didn't want to stop the continued assessment of, of whether the national security has been compromised through a national intelligence community. But you have, by, by the way, of your order. So you've got the appeal, which will go to the 11th Circuit. Again, three random judges will be selected, six of which have been appointed by Trump. We're going to talk about one of them because she's married to one of the special master candidates that Trump has proposed into that in a moment and um five of the judges on the panel are either appointed by obama or um you know clinton or other people that were not trump not republicans comes to, just to remind everybody another lesson your your one of your two senators federal senators in this case marco rubio nominates someone and trump appoints to the 11th circuit and to all the circuits Talk about that in a moment. Shit. That's the appeal. See how important it is to get out and fucking vote and make sure that these motherfuckers can't appoint these pieces of shit. Ruin our country. Ask her to reconsider her order in a number of ways. Once it reminds her you don't have jurisdiction over this matter because the factors that a federal judge has to apply to insert herself into an ongoing investigation. Pay attention, motherfuckers. Or even a grand jury. Um, are extraordinary, and you, Judge, have not found that those extraordinary elements are present. You talked about one of them in the last podcast, which is this callous disregard for the rights of Donald Trump. In fact, she found the opposite. She found no callous disregard for the rights of Donald Trump in the execution of the search warrant. So you don't have jurisdiction. And then they go on and talk about, as you, you've done, including in your hot takes, about um, the ownership, the possessory right of the person has to be present in order for them to bring a motion of this type and for the judge to find some sort of executive privilege. And again, they reminded this judge, trying to school this judge, that Donald Trump could not possibly have a, a, a legitimate argument to possessory rights, ownership rights, over classified documents. So judge, we're going to help you avoid a reversible error. We're going to tell you 
that the classified documents, including those empty folders, right? Those 48 empty folders or so of classified material that we don't know where they went. We have to be able to continue to investigate that because those documents, Ben, as they said in the papers, are not just relevant evidence. They are the very object of the criminal investigation. The crime that's being alleged is that he stole the people's documents. You can't claim the people's documents are yours and therefore can't be reviewed when that is the very object of the three crimes that he's being charged with. And then reminding her of the impact to the intelligence. What I should do is donate right now. Donate. Oh my gosh. I gotta check on my. Excited. 
over not the attorney-client privilege stuff, although they think that's a laughable argument. It was the executive privilege being asserted by Trump and her assigning a special master related to that. They think that's ridiculous. On the, but they're willing to live with a special master to let them go through like personal items, like the passport, things that weren't really, you know, were properly scooped up by the search warrant execution, but now can be returned as rightful property, uh, not classified information, not defense documents back to Donald Trump. As long as those Which by the way, Popak, weren't they doing that anyway with the filter team? I mean, right. That's why they don't care. They have a process in place that was in the search warrant. And so for them, it's like, okay, you want to pay someone else to do what we were going to do anyway? That was normal procedure, but it's still... Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. And then the executive privilege being used against the executive branch is... Uh, is ridiculous and they and they reminded the judge of that as well but but what they're telling the judge when you when you strip all this away and that's what we do here we strip it all away is judge will live with your order on the special master related to attorney client privilege assertion and any kind of real personal items that he owns um, that, that should be returned to him if they haven't already been but everything else about your special master order is reversible error and here's the, the repeat reasons why and that will go up to the 11th circuit now that's the reason why Ben some people may be head scratching why are they continuing the Department of Justice to participate in the judge's process of picking a special master and joint submitting um, with, uh, with Donald Trump, this eight-page thing about the special master and what the function of the special master would be if they're also And they're willing to go forward, so it won't be a waiver of their argument, with this other aspect of, of the special master. Now let's look at the people that both sides have picked for special master. Department of Justice picks one unassailable uh, people who have no axe to grind and no political agenda or other link to the case that would disqualify them. Barbara Jones, you and I talked at length about Judge Bar- former Judge Barbara Jones. She was appointed by the Southern District of New York to be the special manager <laughs> for Cohen's materials, for Rudy Giuliani's materials. So she is a well-regarded, respected lion of the bench, you know, ex, uh, lioness of the bench, ex-judge, who, um, they said, she's done it before. Let's let's use her again. That sounds good. And the other judge that you talked about, Judge Thomas Griffith, Griffith, who also has a tremendous reputation and, and just stepped off recently from the uh, Court of Appeals, or the Federal Court of Appeals sitting in Washington. Now let's contrast at the two people that Donald Trump has, has uh, selected, one of which I sort of know from, uh, from working in, in Miami. First one is uh, Ray Deary, who is a recently retired Eastern District New York, meaning Brooklyn, New York, federal judge. Ray Deary has a very good record. He was appointed by Ronald Reagan. He's about 78 years old. But what is the problem with Ray Deary? It's that he is connected to Carter Page, who used to work for Donald Trump, in which the FBI, through the the, uh, FISA court, the, the Foreign Surveillance Court, that Judge Deary had been a member of, appointed by John Roberts for about eight years, there were three different search warrants that he issued based on representations by the FBI against Carter Page, a uh, Trump uh, uh, advisor and counselor. 
based on the FBI's allegations and the Department of Justice allegations that he was informed by working for um, the Russians and that they had enough evidence concerning that using a little bit of the Steele dossier, which has now been discredited. The problem with the Carter Page event is that the Department of Justice's Inspector General, in doing a review of whether there was problems with those search warrants, found that at least two out of the three were improper and based on an improper basis. It should not have, they should not have gone to the FISA court and Judge, um, and, and Judge Deary, and they should not have obtained those search warrants, and the FBI and the Department of Justice sort of conceded that later. So what do you have? You have a judge being offered a special master who got burnt twice by the FBI and the Department of Justice and may have a real jaundice view of any government position being brought, brought in front of them, despite his, his otherwise impeccable record on the bench. I don't think it's a coincidence that he was the judge that got essentially burnt by the Carter Page. I, and Popak, before you do the next one, yeah, that's sure. an incredible analysis right there. I had not heard that analysis. Lots of people were speculating. Why Deary, you know, Deary's got a record of being a great reputation, very reputable judge, but they're banking on the fact that Deary's going to say, hey, you, I was misled by the government once before, so I'm going to come into this with a great deal of skepticism about the work. Uh, absolutely. Yep, thank you. And the second one is uh, Paul Huff Jr. Okay, so let's start with that. Paul Huff's father, Paul Huff Sr., was my first federal criminal trial that I defended um, 20 years ago. It's a well-respected family in Miami. Um, he is the son of the of, of, of federal judge that's now retired. He has had his own nice career as a commercial litigator, as a products liability injury litigator at a major firm in Coral Gables, very close to my firm. I know the guy well through other people. He also served as uh, Charlie Crist's when he was governor, Republican then governor of Florida as his, as his attorney as his attorney general at that time. I'm sorry, as his general counsel, so the head lawyer for Charlie Crist. And he then went to two major international global law firms. Why, did, why is there a, a taint of conflict of interest related to Paul Huff Jr.? Because he's married to Barbara Lagoa. Barbara Lagoa sits on the 11th Circuit, having been nominated by Marco Rubio and, and appointed by Donald Trump. Barbara Lagoa, I'll just say it, had a very good reputation as a Miami state court level trial judge appointed by the governor to the 3rd District Court of Appeal in Miami. I've appeared in front of her in both proceedings. She had an impeccable credential. She's on the right side of the aisle related to her politics, and she got appointed to the 11th. Now, Paul Huff Jr. Is, gets picked as a special master, and there's an appeal to the 11th Circuit. We'll talk about judges refusing and disqualifying themselves because of their spouses later with Jenny Thomas. What do you think happens then? Do you think she, she has to refuse herself if she's selected? I think that anyone other than the Supreme Court, I think they would technically have an obligation to recuse if the spouse is, uh, if the spouse comes before you. That's the canon that, that deals with judicial recusals. And as we'll talk about later, when it comes to the Supreme Court, though, they're self-governing regarding all potential conflicts of interest and that there is no one who can tell them whether there's a conflict or not, which is one of the issues of why there needs to be serious reform there. But if she follows the rule of law, she should definitely recuse herself if it comes in front of her. 
to the extent the decisions being made by her husband go in front of her or have the potential to go in front of her. And it seems like to the extent the husband would be appointed as a special master, they absolutely would because they be, to the extent decisions are made or could be made. And one of the things that Trump wants particularly is the special master to make determinations of executive privilege. Like, to just have this independent party make the balls and strikes on what's executive privilege, not the executive branch. And we're talking about that. Then that will go to the, you know. Agreed. Let, 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 let me bring it, let me square the circle one more time. Paul Hoff Jr. is a member of the Federalist Society. You can go on their website. He's sitting right there. He's well-respected in right-wing Republican and Republican circles. I'm sure the six... Republicans who sit on the 11th Circuit appointed by Trump like Paul Huff Jr., they like Barbara Lagoa, so there's a halo effect around him, but there's nothing in his background whatsoever as a private lawyer or as sitting as the uh, general counsel for Charlie Crist that makes him qualified to practice in this arena of determining executive privilege, even, even having a national security clearance to look at any of the documents. He is not, you know, I assume those are the one of the two, so that she would can and would pick Deary, because Deary matches up better with Barbara Jones and with the other federal appellate judge on the other side. So she's trying. I think Huck sort of loses, but I think that may have been done strategically, like game theory, to get her to pick Deary. Look, they interviewed Deary before they picked him. Now that he stepped off the bench, she just recently retired as a senior status judge. They know what his positions are terms of this, and they, they think they found a friend in former Judge Deary, and that's why he's on their list. Let's, I, I'm not sure what she does. I think she stops the whole special master process until she gets guidance from the from the 11th Circuit, but they, the Department of Justice, just to kind of end my breakdown of this, the Department of Justice has given Judge Cannon until the 15th to do the right thing. If she doesn't do the right thing by the 15th, they're going to hit stay order related to all of these things, um, they're going to take, they're going to ask for a stay at the 11th Circuit from the three-judge panel that gets appointed there. So they're kind of giving her one last chance, Judge, to avoid reversible error. Fix your order, stay the aspect of the order that's reversible, or we're taking you up to the 11th Circuit seeking our injunction there. It was definitely when I read what the Department of Justice said to the judge, it was somewhat of a rare strong-arm move to tell the judge, like, we're giving you a deadline, judge. But it's because there are unprecedented times with her level of incompetence and corruption where they said in their motion for partial stay, you're going to rule on these classified documents. They told her. <laughs> That's normally what a judge tells the litigant. They said, we're going to give you until September 15th to rule on our motion for partial stay regarding the 100 classified documents, or basically we're going to tell on you and we're going to embarrass you to the 11th Circuit. And if you think you're embarrassed now, wait until the motion that we file, which is why I don't think they've yet filed their actual appeal, because it's so blistering, will be so blistering and so destructive of our credibility. I think they want to legitimately give her until next week to try to reverse course and do the right thing. So she responded to that motion for partial stay, which was filed on Thursday, and she ordered Trump to respond to that by September, I believe by September 12th, so on Monday. Monday. On, on Monday we can expect Trump's filing, and now Trump's going to have to respond 
What is his position regarding the government saying under no circumstances can he control or own those 100 classified records? We got a taste of it in the motion for special master of what he's going to argue, which is he's not going to argue that they are absolutely mine because he'd be admitting to the crime that he stole them, number one. And he's not going to argue what he claims, which has no bearing on the crimes he's being accused of because he doesn't know what the documents, because he knows what the documents are, but doesn't want that to come out what they are. He's not going to argue that he declassified the records because if he declassified nuclear secrets, which he's not allowed to do, in many cases that's like almost worse. Like you just waved a magic wand and you declassified nuclear secrets. Anybody can do a Freedom of Information Act request and just find out our nation's nuclear secrets and you can't declassify nuclear secrets. But here's what he's arguing because it's in the brief that was filed last night regarding the special master. Plaintiff believes the government's objection to the special master reviewing documents that they declassified is misplaced. First, the government's position incorrectly presumes the outcome, that their separation of these documents is inviolable. So their trust basically says you can't even need a special master to look at it because even though the Department of Justice is saying they're classified, you can't believe them that they're even classified. We don't know that to be the fact. And he goes, second, their stance wrongly assumes that if a document has a classification marking, it remains classified in perpetuity. Now notice there, what does it even mean? He's not even saying he declassified. Of course, at some point in time, a document will not be classified 50 years or 100 years from now, but they are a classified document. And the statutes and the criminal statutes he's being prosecuted or investigated under don't require classification at all. Oh, and this one gets extra embarrassing. If any seized document is a presidential record, plaintiff, then referring to Trump, has an absolute right of access to it, while access by others, including those in the executive branch, has specified limitations. Thus, President Trump cannot be denied access to those documents, which in this matter gives legal authorization to the special master to engage in first interview. Talk about gibberish, non-sequitur, and misunderstanding. He's not the president. He's not President Trump. He's not the president. And yes, the executive branch is the one who should have it, not the former president who stole it. It's a total inversion of the law. And if that was the case, then what? All former presidents can go and just steal documents from the executive branch? But if that's the argument, Pocock, he's in a lot of trouble. I agree. And you said earlier when we started this segment that he didn't, the Trump side didn't do anything for two full weeks. They're not doing anything. It stretches back even further. And the Department of Justice reminded Canada that in their filings. He never asserted the executive privilege when he voluntarily or was compelled to respond to the grand jury subpoena that they used first to get back all the classified information. The one where Bob, you know, taped up the folder with, you know, like masking tape that said, you know, top secret documents enclosed. And this is it. We did it all. It's all in this one little folder. He never asserted executive privilege then. It's a little late and disingenuous to say you think in honesty that you, that executive privilege applies. You're so right. The search warrant was needed because the grand jury subpoena was needed to get the documents. Thank you. 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 Thank you
for example, to pay for lawyers of Jan 6 witnesses um, to try to get them not to testify and to not give truthful testimony and give information. And that Save America Pact that Trump created was created right after the election. It wasn't like a normal political action committee would try to, like, try to get someone elected. Its literal goal and objective is to undermine stop our democracy. Stop the peaceful transfer of power. Stop the peaceful transfer of power. Um, so, Popak, other than that intro I gave, that the yeah. grand jury subpoenas are out there, what other information can we gain yeah. and why is this big deal? You and I have thanks, you and I have talked a lot about the fact that we have we have been able to identify not just one, not just two, but probably four or more ongoing grand juries led by Merrick Garland's Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Again, answering the question just a couple of months ago. What's Merrick Garland doing? You know, he's asleep at the switch. He's not. But there's a process and grand juries um, are fragile things. They have to conform, you have to prepare your case to Send it to the grand jury, you've got to get witness subpoenas out. And so now we know that um, there's at least, I think, four. There's, there's one in particular that you launched a segment about, which is looking at two things. They're related to two things the fake elector scheme and the use of the fake elector scheme and other, and other things to raise money fraudulently from donors with Trump's Save America PAC. Not a political action committee in the Department of Justice's view, at least as the, as the target of their investigation, but rather is a major rift for Trump and others to get money extracted from their wallet, you know, taken right out of their wallet into their coffers, to use for these other nefarious purposes, particularly the, 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 the stop Joe Biden from being president of the United States or to stop the people transfer of power. So this particular grand jury has not only focused on Save America, but it's also now subpoenaed uh, at least three people close to the Trump orbit and more. They always start with the low-level White House aides who know everything because they're in every room as a literal fly on the wall about everything, and they worry about their careers going to jail, so they're good witnesses. So they've already brought in a whole tranche of lower-level um, White House aides. Now they've moved on to... Stephen Miller, if not the most senior policy advisor for Donald Trump in most of this administration, one of the, he, you know, he, he was part of the um, terrible immigration policy and build the wall um, uh, policies and pronouncements for Donald Trump. They're all, they all come back to the dark lord of Stephen Miller. The other person is Brian Jack. Brian Jack was the last White House. where we are. 
talking about, the fake elector, Save America Act, is being led the prosecutor that's in charge of it is Thomas Wyndham. You and I, about six months ago, commented that the arrival of Tom Wyndham, who is a seasoned, fearless pitbull of a prosecutor on the federal side, especially in public corruption cases, was not going to be a good thing for Donald Trump. And now we're seeing the fruits of that. Tom Wyndham and his and his group of assistant U.S. attorneys are the ones that are leading on these grand juries, and he's the one signing these subpoenas, and he's the one that's intervened even in the Eastman case related to the phone. Anything related to fake electors and anything related to the Save America PAC and Trump is being led by a really amazing fearless grand juries, but how many grand juries do you think are currently investigating Trump-related, Donald Trump-related? Federal? Federal, yeah. Yeah, federal. I think five or six. Um, you know, as we talked about, obviously one of the federal grand juries relates to the search at Mar-a-Lago because that was the subpoena that issued from that grand jury. Um, we obviously know there's a grand jury here in connection with the Save America Act.
Cruz is a vital figure because the Texas senator added his didn't want to just be seen as objecting for the sake of objecting. Cruz and his commission idea opportunity to say, well, this is why we're objecting. We want a commission to study the election. Cruz gives political and legislative cover to Republican senators who were on the fence, not sure if they were going to object, looking for a show the president they were fully with him. One of the things that's so interesting about Ted Cruz is, you know, Harvard Law School Solicitor General runs as a constitutional conservative. Um, it's a large part of his identity that he presents to voters. And, 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 
currently are discussing, you know, whether any of this is constitutional. He talks about that discussion and what it reveals. Examples of fraud. Corner four. How about the that? Lee was texting okay, with Mark Meadows and saying, "Hey, I'm here to help you through this. There's a possibility and here that stoned Arid Stoner. Or there was fraud <laughs> in certain states, but eventually Senator Full Lee album, comes right to the conclusion that the evidence just Full isn't album. there." And Just he like decided, when I was a kid, as much as he wanted to help his the political ally Trump, album, he's not going to object. Cruz, because of his decision old. on a, a commission to study... Lightsabers are finally a reality, and you can own them. This new military flashlight should have an explanation for why he's doing so. It's a crossroads for Lee and Cruz, two best friends. What are they going to do? The two sharpest...
integreert. McConnell's friends say he relished the call of Trump. He was ready to say good riddance to the president. The president who he had built a transactional bond with, the president who had worn out his welcome the Senate leader. This idea of loyalty, what is that concept that Trump is invoking when he's trying to get side to essentially to overturn and election? How is it different from how we should the
an election then, that will enable states to, to then have with no ads to try to put forward alternate electors. It would raise questions about all the electors. Shout out to KPY, Pascal, you're He's already failed in the courts. On the rest, late December, early January, he needs to refocus this time on the vice president, Mike Pence. How can he bring Pence in to be the first domino to fall in a line of dominoes to keep him in power? But Pence is the person who has to start the process. Pence didn't do it. Thank you, Pence. Now go fuck yourself. Because that causes chaos. That causes a constitutional crisis where then you could argue the states need to step in. The House of Representatives might need to vote.
on the eve of an insurrection, yeah, and right he couldn't killer. do the president's bidding. Yeah, when he got him to the, in the certification of the presidential election. In the post, too, which is killer. Yeah, because of the piece on it. That's why it does. That's why it's doing it. But I thought I, I thought it would. I need a change. Raise your blade, please. Or a pair of scissors. Over. Next day, a pair of If you own a Mr. Vacation uh -huh. on Airbnb, I mean, I mean, if we could get this to go through here, we could run this all the way down. Almost on the outside, you better know what If we could get this to go through here, but we're not going to do this anyway right here. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I'm going to go right here. Look at that moment. See where that uh, top Embrace hard right conservatism, but have a presentable. Almost Where that cloth is with the uh, yeah, uh, articulation. Argument. If you'll hold on one side here, that was how Mike Pence described hold, himself hey, years and how he described himself once he made it to the House of Representatives. Highly adaptable because Pence always is willing to understand and change when the Republican Party changes. Pence watches inside the House of Representatives how the party is convulsing during the Tea Party era, and he this signs on great. and he becomes Love a Tea it. Party leader. He goes to Indiana, becomes governor, screen. and he watches Trump screen. start to rise in the Republican Party. Together. Instead I mean, of becoming anti-Trump, being stop repelled the by bugs, Trump's but personality, right here, I guess. even though Pence initially kill him. Ted Cruz, even he ultimately like says, swath. hey, I, Trump's someone I can work with. Because Pence is a conservative from, like, who is malleable in terms of his political coalition. When Trump calls him in 2016 and says, let's have you on the ticket, he's all in. He has always eyed the presidency as his ultimate goal. Working with Trump as a vice presidential contender, it was a path in that direction. So why not? Some people close to Pence. Go, go to, uh, go to a IQ. Did IQ? Don't align yourself with Donald Trump. You're likely going to lose the election. But Pence said, "I want to be with Trump because I want to be with where the party is going. Even if it's more populist than me, I'm willing to change." He adapted. He went with Trump. And he was loyal from day one. This guy's one. fucking he wasn't awesome. Someone was going uh, to question the direction of Trump or the party, but ride the tide. Costa? Now, he's confronted yeah, at the beginning of the election, fraud allegations, and he has to decide what is he going to do? Is he going to oh, amplify it? Is great. he going to be like Rudy Giuliani? What is he deciding? This is in the period before they're asking him to intervene on January 6th. The clips show everything about Pence. In the days after the election, Pence is essentially echoing Trump in yeah, his own way, walking a political like, tightrope, trying to not be seen as extreme again, and, and saying there, the election right? was stolen, the idea? but not having yeah. any room right. between and him and Trump down the middle, when it comes the, to having suspicion the, the about the outcome. But I'm Pence, at event screen. after event, also, says to voters, door, don't worry, we're digging into this election, we're looking into possible fraud. You can just He's put another swath He knows that Trump, as much as anyone around Trump knows, he knows that Trump wants to fight this 
for weeks, if not months, and he's not going to stop Trump in any way. He remains the loyal soldier, but he couches his rhetoric in a bit of a different way. Pence is always careful. He wants to be seen as close to Trump, but he doesn't want to be seen as just repeating Trump's lines. He wants to have a career bulldozer. And that means not being seen as Mr. Stolen Election, enabling Trump, but he also wants to be seen as Trump's ally. It's never easy. Mike Pence to figure out exactly what to say and what to do. He doesn't want to lose his bearing as a Republican who's taken seriously by the leaders of the party, um, but he doesn't want to lose Trump's favor. There's a really interesting phone call. It's a discussion between Quayle and Pence. Can you tell us that phone call and what Mike Pence's you know, process and anguish that he's going through at that moment? There is no one in the world who understands Mike Pence perhaps better than Dan Quayle. Both Indiana Republicans, white males who have served as vice president for Republican presidents. There are only two people in the world who fit the profile of Mike Pence and Dan Quayle. Two male Republicans from Indiana who served as vice president of the United States. Dan Quayle was at the lectern on January 6, 1993, overseeing the certification of his own defeat. He was someone who had been in the shoes Pence was about to put on. Pence calls up Quayle, vice president to vice president. What do you think I should do? Quayle says, you don't have any options. There's one thing you do here. You certify the election. Pence says, I understand, but you don't understand the pressure I'm under. Trump wants me to do something. There's a huge appetite inside of this White House to somehow fight this, to block the certification. Quayle says, I get it. I understand the president's angry, but you don't have options. It's okay. You don't have to do this. You're an overseer of the certification, the MC, the maitre d', nothing more. Pence understands. He says he listens again, but says this is a tough situation. We're hearing about voter fraud in states like your own, Arizona. Quayle now lives in Arizona. Quayle says, I don't buy it, Mike. There's no fraud here. This is not a legitimate claim of fraud. Don't buy into the claims of fraud. Just do your job. Pence listens. He trusts Quayle. They're friends. They're both conservative Republicans. Uh, but this was a gut check for Pence. Call up Quayle, someone who's done this before, someone who's overseen a defeat on another January 6th, and get the advice. It was a critical moment for Pence to hear it from Quayle himself, another vice president, not a political advisor on the payroll, not from someone close to Trump, not from some random lawyer. He was hearing advice from right. a former vice president who had been doing it. the same thing. And Vice President Quayle had one message again and again. You have nothing to do but certify the election. You stand up there, you smile, Thank you, you certify it, and you go home. Nothing more. So going to the day of January 6th and to the speech and to mentioning so, I mean, Mike Dan Pence. I mean, he Mike tried Pence. to get Pence to go along Dan with Quayle him. Who, Maybe he pulled up with a little change of mind despite the fact that they issued a statement. Not to, but not what to, is Trump doing? Here. Is he see, appealing see, to the mob in that moment? I'm worried about right what here. What do they yeah. think that they Sorry, are doing when they are telling the crowd to fight? What is the plan at that point? And what is going on when he's talking about Pence to those people? As someone who has covered Trump for over a decade, there's no happier moment for Donald Trump than when he's revving up a crowd. I've seen it in Arizona. I've seen it in Texas. I've seen it in Florida. He loves to have the crowd in the palm of his hand and not worry about the consequence of what he's saying. To stir him up, 
to show their loyalty through roar after roar. He likes to have the crowd with him. He wants the crowd to be as big as possible. January 6, 2021 presented Trump He's a one fucking of crowd his most crowd enthusiastic whore. and fervent like crowds. And he wanted them to do whatever they wanted to prove their loyalty. Maybe that was marching up to the the White House. Nope. He didn't huh? think no. that far ahead Fuck. about what it would all mean. But he liked chaos. He likes when the crowd becomes frenzy because it, it's a show of appreciation and fervor for him. We can't read Donald Trump's mind about what he wanted from that crowd, but it's certain through his words that day that he wanted action. He wanted people to stand with him and fight. Trial by combat, as Giuliani said. Could you take us to the Capitol and to their chanting, you know, hang Mike Pence? He is now a target of the, the crowd. And what is happening with him? Once Pence releases his letter and it circulates immediately on social media, Trump supporters erupt. That's they can't believe it. Pence is breaking no, the Trump. He's not going to do what the president wants. They explode on Pennsylvania Avenue on the steps of the Capitol because of the letter. They read it and realize Pence isn't going to go along. Once the Trump supporters at the Capitol realize that Pence has issued a formal letter saying he's not going to do what Trump wants, they began to chant. Hang Mike We're Pence. We're about to have our skinny anyway. Mike Pence. Yeah. It's coming. I'm going to check the mail. Mike Pence. They want to find the man yeah. they now blame for enabling so, Joe Biden to become the next president. What's going to happen? I'm going to tie this into this, certification this thing right here. seen as an enabler of Biden. They want to find them, and they want a confrontation. Pence is inside the chamber. Secret Service pulls him out. The crowd is in the building, sir, they said. We need to move you to a safe location. They move him to the side, to an office nearby the Senate yeah, chamber, right and then ultimately the down the stairs to a, a secure area where he's waiting by his motorcade. His aides say, sir, maybe it's best we leave. Maybe we should leave the Capitol. He says to his Secret Service agents, I'm not going to get in that get some gators. I'm not going to leave. I need to stay. Because he knows the minute you get in the motorcade, that motorcade will take you away, and it will take you to a secure location. Who knows when you get back to the Capitol? to continue the certification of the election. So Pence decides to stay. He declines the offer to leave the Capitol. And what's happening at the White House, especially as regards Pence? The president tweets at 224. What is his attitude towards Pence, and what is he doing? There's a bar stool Trump is watching television from the dining room near the Oval Office, processing it all, please, to see his supporters with him, his supporters at the Capitol. He's not horrified by what's happening. People who came in to see him in the dining room say he was watching television almost like he would be watching a golf match, keeping an eye on it all, uh, not really reacting to it in an emotional way, happy to see his supporters out there. When he's updated on Pence's condition, that Pence is safe, he shrugs and says, oh, okay, thanks for the update. Uh, but this is someone who's not really that concerned, based on our reporting, about what was happening with Pence because he knew Pence had broken with him. Uh, Pence was safe, he assumed the Secret Service had him together, uh, but he liked that his supporters were fighting. He wasn't worried about Pence's safety, at least that wasn't top of mind, based on our reporting, but he was someone who was loving that the crowd was fighting. I mean, and to be tweeting about him in the midst of that, I mean, what message was that sending? Eastman, Trump, and others are still pressuring Pence as the riot begins to do something, to object to the certification. The pressure campaign led by Trump 
went to the, the final moment on January 6th, even as people are storming the Capitol, the president is unrelenting. He won't back off of his push to have Pence walk away. He wants Pence to do something. So the pressure campaign continued, even without Trump being physically there. His people were there pressuring Pence. And for Trump, it was something to watch, not something, at first at least, to stop. Well, we haven't talked much about, but who Spectacle. has made a similar Spectator agreement or sports. similar calculation as Lindsey Graham that staying close to Trump Spectator is worth it Kevin McCarthy. And at this moment on Bob January 6th, is a moment where he's going Friendline, to see how PBS. much influence he actually it's has in a phone call it's... to Trump. What is that phone call? PBS. What is he asking of Trump? And what does he get as a result? McCarthy says to Trump, you need to call these people out of here. You need to get them out of the Capitol. McCarthy's office was being bombarded with, with rocks and pelted by people with metal bars. In the days after January 6th, I walked through McCarthy's office just to see it. And you could still see the cracks in the windows, the trash outside. McCarthy's office was being ransacked on January 6th by the rioters. McCarthy's office was ransacked, cracked windows, trash everywhere. His staff was in fear of their lives uh, being taken. Uh, this was a moment of true fear inside of the U.S. Capitol, whether you are a Republican or Democrat, that your life was at risk. McCarthy tells Trump, you have to get these people out. Trump says to McCarthy, Kevin, these people believe so that I won more than you did. That's where Trump's mind was in the conversation with McCarthy Turning him in. about loyalty, about the election supposedly being stolen Freaking in Trump's view. It wasn't about McCarthy's safety or Pence's safety. It was about loyalty and political obedience. Trump wanted loyalty and obedience from McCarthy, even as violence consumed the Capitol. But I mean, talk about loyalty. Kevin McCarthy is somebody who has gone along with Trump from the very beginning. And he even objected and, to the election. And who objected to the election. I mean, does Kevin, I mean, when you look at that situation, does the loyalty only go one way with Donald Trump? How does Kevin McCarthy view, you know, what did he get in exchange for the loyalty that he had provided up until that moment? By working closely with Trump, McCarthy President. came closer to the speakership. He has remained the leader of House Republicans because he has remained an ally of President Trump. McCarthy's political capital inside of the House Republican Party is intertwined with his relationship with Donald Trump. If you take away the relationship with Trump, McCarthy knows you don't have much of a relationship with your core members who have that relationship with Trump or who have that admiration for Trump. McCarthy, power. if anything, is a political power, operator. He knows where the power is limits. inside the GOP. Time it's limits. with Trump. And as long as it's now. with Trump, Time the party is going to be with Trump. Another moment that's about Ted Cruz, they're trying to decide, are they going to continue to object? Is Ted Cruz going to continue to object? And it seems like, once again, it's a situation of following. And it's a situation of following Josh Hawley. And can you describe what happens in the calculation that, that Ted Cruz makes in that moment? Some of the more moderate members of the Republican Party pull Senator Cruz and Senator Hawley aside when they're in a secure area and they whisper to the objectors, maybe it's time to lay down your arms politically. Maybe it's time we just move forward with this entire process. Let's not object. But still, even as people are being killed as part of the insurrection, some Republican senators say, we are going to continue to object. 
That's just who we are. That's what we're going to do. We're here to help President Trump object to the election. Some Republican senators say to them privately, you can't do this. This is an insurrection. Back off. But they won't back off. And what a revealing snapshot of the Republican Party. Even at the moment of violence, when they're in a secure area because the Capitol is being attacked, some Republicans say to their own colleagues, sorry, we're moving ahead with Trump's agenda, what Trump wants, because that's where our party is, and that's where we are. So Lindsey Graham, where is he in that moment? Lindsey Graham is frustrated, he's emotional, and he says he's had enough with his entire fight, spearheaded by Trump, but he doesn't really break with Trump at his political core. It's a moment of grievance about Trump, but not a total break. Graham is someone who is still talking to Trump days later about how he should rehabilitate himself and run for president again in 2024. There is a momentary spasm of frustration with Trump, but it doesn't last. Those speeches on the Senate floor, Senator Graham, Senator Lee, show their frustration with the president, taking it to this point, to the point of a capital attack. But they don't want to see themselves distanced too much from the man who has all the power. I mean, you described that he's confronted by Trump supporters in those days after oh, January yeah. 6th. I mean, he must see the power of, oh, yeah, that's of great. the base. That's great imagery, too. And Senator Graham feels the heat immediately after that speech, approached in airports, and Trump supporters say to him, you're a traitor, you're the worst, you're expletive. Graham nods, he takes it, he grimaces as he makes his way through the airport, and he recognizes that if he wants a future in the Republican Party, he certainly can't break with Donald Trump. He can have his own position on January 6th, his own position on whether Trump went too far, but Trump is the party, and it's visceral. There's an almost violent edge to the way Graham is criticized on social media and elsewhere. They see Graham as not just someone who opposes Trump's position on January 6th, and at that time, but someone who's a traitor, traitor. Uh, this is the kind of way Graham is cast immediately by Trump supporters. And Graham quickly works to rehabilitate himself with Trump and with Trump supporters. It, it was a, a moment of dissent from the Trump position, and he quickly found his way back. There's an extensive description of the book of Graham in that we'll period after January 6th, where he continues to see himself as the Trump whisperer, as somebody who can moderate him, who can get him off talking the election, and it's like Groundhog Day. I mean, can you describe what Graham is trying to get from we'll Trump, but that he just cannot, you know, for all of the golf games, he cannot get Trump to do? Graham loves the push and pull with Trump trying to get Trump to change his personality, but then knowing he can and explaining that to other Republicans. He's the explainer, the best friend, the confidant, the inside man when it comes He's to Donald Trump. And G. there's a sense sometimes Lady that Graham believes Lindsey he can push Graham. Trump in a different direction and a realization that he can't. But what Graham wants to be is in the room in the with Trump, region. whether that's on the course, at Mar-a-Lago, inside the White House. This and is someone course, who wants to help he be an advisor to the person he sees as the center of the Republican Party. Graham's colleagues say that he's someone they count on to give a read of where Trump is, that he is someone who they believe can interpret Trump's whims, his moods, his different uh, power centers around him, 
and they turn to Graham, including McConnell, for advice on how to navigate everything Trump is doing. I mean, in this period, it seems like the thing that Graham really wants is for Trump to stop talking about the election, the stolen election. Can you just describe that argument that he makes and the effect that it actually has um, on Trump? Graham wants Trump to focus on 2024, not 2020. He sees so much opportunity on the horizon for Trump, even now. He wants Trump to put down the grievances, stop claiming the election was a lie. But he also recognizes Trump just won't listen. In golf game after golf game, phone call after phone call, Graham is pleading with Trump, stop talking about 2020. Uh, But it it never convinces Trump. Trump hears him out, sometimes they'll hang up on each other, sometimes they'll curse at each other. They're friends, but he can't convince Trump to actually move on. When Kevin McCarthy goes to Mar-a-Lago, can you describe that scene and how important it is and the the story of the photograph and telling the the press finding out about it? McCarthy's colleagues are wondering, what's Kevin going to do? Well, McCarthy flies down to Mar-a-Lago, has lunch with Trump. They're sitting there having burgers. They're both trying to lose a little weight. They take the buns off the burgers and they laugh about that how they're both friends still after January 6th, guys who can exchange diet tips. McCarthy says to Trump, I want your help for 2022. Help me win back the majority. It was an opportunity on the table laid out for Donald Trump to repair himself. McCarthy didn't need to make an explicit offer of rehabilitation, but Trump knew it was just that. This was an offer to come back, to begin the Trump comeback. And it was McCarthy, as a congressional leader, who made it happen. McConnell had broken with Trump, wasn't talking to Trump, but McCarthy was willing to fly down to Trump's home to show that kind of respect to Trump, that he would come to Trump's place, not have Trump come to the Capitol. By going to Mar-a-Lago, McCarthy made so many Trump supporters in the House pleased that the House GOP would remain politically cozy with the former president. But McCarthy's visit appalled others like Representative Cheney, who saw McCarthy as someone who was ingratiating to the point of embarrassment with the former president. And then when we look back on it now, was that a turning point in where the Republican Party was going? McCarthy and McConnell could have led their conferences to break with Trump. McConnell could have convinced his colleagues to convict Trump in the Senate impeachment trial. McCarthy could have told his colleagues that Trump's the past and it's time to build a new future. Instead, McConnell said people should do what they want in the Senate impeachment trial, and he did not vote to convict Trump, though he blamed a lot of January 6th on Trump himself. McCarthy goes down to Mar-a-Lago and says to Trump, regardless of what has happened in recent weeks, I still need your help. I need your help to help me win the speaker's gavel in 2022. Trump sees in McCarthy a politically pliant person who can help him come back and someone who is not trying to go to war with him, even though there's an opportunity to do just that and to have a full break. Late January and early February 2021 is a moment historians will look back on as a rare window where Republicans could have jumped out and gone in an entirely different direction. They did not. So let's just skip ahead to the end. The anniversary of, of January 6th when you've got Liz Cheney and her father is the only Republicans there. She's about to be censured and their Republican National Committee is going to issue a statement saying January 6th was legitimate political discourse. Can you also describe 
the Republican Party that has been transformed by January 6th, by the decisions that it's made since then? Where is the party at that point? And what does that scene represent? January 6th will live in infamy as a moment where Republicans had to make a decision about who each of them are. What does it mean to be a Republican? Your reaction to January 6th, an insurrection, tells us everything. There was an attack on the U.S. Capitol after a rally held by the President of the United States who was pushing his supporters in Congress and elsewhere to object to an election. The Republican Party for years was in the wilderness, watching President Obama win election after election, watching Democrats win power. When Mitt Romney loses in 2012, many Republicans believe the party is dead. It won't come back. Uh, Paul Ryan and his vision of Medicare and Social Security reform doesn't land with most American people. It doesn't, doesn't land with the working class. After 2012, the Republican Party thought the working class was lost and that the future of the party had to be centrist, that maybe it should move in a different direction. You saw that from Jeb Bush and so many others who ran in 2016. But there was one person on that 2016 stage who said, I actually don't want to go after entitlement reform. I want to limit immigration, and I want to have a hard-nosed nationalist appeal to the voter. Trump revolutionized the Republican Party, a free trade party protectionist. He made a party that was trying to moderate on immigration, a party of border hawks, and restrictive on immigration. Trump changed an entire party. He made overtures to working class union Democrats, and he made Republicans think inside the halls of Congress that maybe they could have a new paradigm for the Republican future. But they had a crossroads in 2016. You can win power, but it's going to be with this person who has said all of these different things over the years that are offensive, who has a spotty record on business and politics. You can win power, but it comes at this cost. They took the bargain in 2016, and ever since January 2017, when Trump took the oath of office, the Republican Party has essentially been in lockstep with Donald Trump. The anti-Trump movement, the never-Trump movement, has been on the relative fringes of American politics. It has a large media footprint from time to time, but not a political coalition out in the states. Trump took a searing message on cultural and political issues and made it something that was real to Republicans, a path to power. Power more than ideology, now drives the Republican Party. This is a party that argued for years it came out of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, a conservative Republican Party. Now it's not really even a Republican Party in ethos or necessarily conservative, but populist and power-driven. Where are the people on the right of American politics and even the center moving, the center-left, how can we appeal to them on issues like immigration and trade? And so much of the Republican Party now is about passing policy and winning power behind a personality, not necessarily behind an ideology. The ideology of years past has cracked and fallen away. Now at the center is a personality who perseveres even through defeat, even through chaos, even through two impeachments. Donald John Trump. He still lingers on the scene, in control, 
out of office. I thought it was jackass. So that party. J for jackass. And when you see that image of just Liz Cheney and her father. I watched them carefully that day and wondered, are these two people, these Cheneys, the future? Jack everything up. Or are they relics what? of the past? Jack everything up. And they might be the latter. Because the Republican Party has remained with Trump. The ghosts of Cheney and Bush and Reagan still love haunt the halls of the Capitol. They but still have very little love influence. Trump. This is a party that has moved toward Trump. Representative right Cheney desperately wants the Republican Party to come back to the ethos and politics of the past, to get away from cult Trumpism and try to recreate some of the political coalitions and arguments that elevated the party for decades. But she is waging a lonely devil. battle. Huh. The, the image of her well, with her father tells you everything. The change in Republican has politics have retained some respect among the seasoned or moderate conservative people Hitler in the party, but they don't the have Nazis. power. Where are and the followers? Where are That's the why he asked the, the generals, Republican why can't you be she more like the and try to galvanize Republicans who have been slumbering politically for years from that Reagan the Bush wing. Generals in World War II, uh, that's what he asked a general, an American general. people in the coming months and, you know, as well, the general in the said, coming years. You know, the Cheneys Donald, are seen by many Republican voters that as relics of the past, a past they that tried several led times the Republican to kill Party <laughs> into war Hitler. in Iraq, the generals tried intervention several in times. Afghanistan, to, kill to an expanded government during the failed. Bush years, even if they see the Cheneys as more that, that respectable, up. they don't want to return to the politics well, they I represent. Mean, they didn't get it. That's the problem. We're talking about democracy. He's a fucking the Hitler idolizer. Given the state of the Republican Party, literally a fucking modern-day Nazi. Um, Everybody should question. know that by now. American democracy is perhaps more fragile. Deliberately than blind, you're deluding yourself. How healthy can a democracy be? No. If a lie is now at the center of a major political party, how healthy can a democracy be? If many millions of them across the country won't accept Joe Biden as the rightful president, yeah, and that's because of Fox. This is we not about red and blue. Anymore. And, uh, Those were simpler times, media easier times. <laughs> this is now but about democracy. Whether people believe in a system that exists or want to overturn it. They were part of that's it. That's where they we are. Orchestration. I see it as a reporter all in all my travels. That this country Fox is not viewers. just divided. All of them. That's, that's an easy way of framing it. It's not a divided country. Foxism. They're being it's a chaotic country Foxism. without By a rule book. And everybody's going around parroting Fox talking points. Also Foxism. called the Constitution. Not, not Foxism. Foxism. If that's so, not the rule book for the whole playing field anymore, so, then what happens? What happens in a soccer match or on a baseball field if everybody decides to stop following the rules? Chaos. American democracy is at a moment of chaos. This is a reckoning for democracy yep. when a former president refuses to concede and he still refuses and to pressure his own to this vice president very to disrupt the certification of an election. He's still claiming he's president many to this very day, to this very second in the United States. How much of a fucking to even have the is. word coup thrown around in the United States of America 
a country that Another began in coup. Philadelphia, forged over Another shared values and philosophies coup. about a st stable system. This was a country that was forged on values, constitutional values, by leaders who wanted a functioning democracy, a country that would have a peaceful transition to power, a country that wouldn't have a military general somehow become a king, there? but a country where a general could return to Mount Vernon after being president and someone else would just quietly take his place. January 6th gets at the core of the founding of America, which is the peaceful transition of power, a presidential system where the next person in line, even if you don't like them, is accepted. Restart. We now have a country and a Republican Party that doesn't accept that the transition of power that took place in 2021 was legitimate. It's not just a crisis for American democracy, it's a tragedy. Let me ask you one more thing. You used to talk to Trump with great regularity when you were reporting on him. You generously told us about those conversations many times. If you talk to him now, and I don't know whether you do or not, how is this Donald Trump different? than the Donald Trump the effects of it can't Everybody, be reversed. Let it be known, those close to Trump now the say he hasn't changed million, at all. The presidency usually changes people who sit in that office. That's it hasn't changed Trump. He remains the same person genius. he was who sat around with Roy Cohn in Manhattan in the 1980s and came up with different legal and business schemes. He's the same person who sat on the 26th floor of Trump Tower with Roger Stone in the 1990s and thought, how could I map out a political career? He's the same Trump who sat with Steve Bannon in the, the Oval Office microphone. in January of 2017 and said, let's have a disruptive presidency. The Trump who worked with Cohn, with Stone, with Bannon is the Trump of 2021, is the Trump of 2022. This is Donald Trump, unchanging, unflinching. Even with Lindsey Graham, he won't change his mind on the election. His supporters beg him to just move on to a different topic. He won't. He's on the march. Brad Parscale, his former campaign manager, says not only will Trump run again, but he's going to run again with vengeance on his mind. This is a former president who wants vengeance. It's such an unusual moment in America. Usually former presidents go home. Jimmy Carter goes back to Plains. George H.W. Bush, after one term, goes back to Texas. Former Presidents Barack Obama, Bill Clinton start to do civic work in the days after their respective presidencies. Donald Trump goes back on the campaign trail, grabbing his people up, promising, hinting, winking that he's going to be back in 2024. Vengeance at the top of his mind and at the center of his agenda. It's going to be if you a think it was bad yeah, in January bad. 6th, right here. just yeah, follow what is terror. happening in the states this is where, it's gonna happen. where so many Republicans well, are passing the voter laws and are saying, come January 2025, we'll be ready this time. We'll be ready this time to help out our son. Disqualify him as a candidate. He never run again. Can they hear you? I hope. I hope everybody can fucking hear me. We need to make it our number one priority as a nation. Maybe he could nudge Trump towards the political center, nudge Trump toward normal. But it was during the Charlottesville riots in our Congress, remove them, bar them, and charge them. He could ever bring Trump around. Disqualify them from the midterms too. 
in That's any way. And it was really from Charlottesville on and he says, I just don't get what Trump's up to, who this guy is. Does he not understand what he's saying when it comes to white nationalism? One of the comments that's reported in the book that Trump says now seems to be especially revealing, which is, you know, these are my people. What does it reveal about Trump, about how he sees people engaged in, in political violence all the way back then? I've stood behind Trump when he's at rallies, watching him watch the crowd. He thinks these crowds, his supporters, are his people. And it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter if they have a crude message on their signs. It doesn't matter if they march through the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia. He sees them as his core supporters, and he won't break with them. This is someone who craves political popularity, and if someone is loyal to him, he will essentially stay loyal to them. That is the Trump transactional playbook, and it applies not just to high-ranking political leaders, but That's to his core supporters works. in the grassroots. <laughs> he can't works. break with people he well, believes dude. are there with him, who have been with him not only during his political career, but during his business career, his time on reality show television. He believes he has an audience. And he wants yes, to keep audience the audience, regardless of their content. And just to get it clearly from you, it's not even speculation. It's what he actually Although said, he, right, to Ryan. What, what do you mean? Because what, he what, had what, what a, I mean, a did, um, show that got canceled. Is that he actually said to Ryan, oh, he's yeah, he ran for president. Right. As the House Speaker's listening to the president go on and on, they he realizes they that Trump won't move at all. So, Why won't Trump what can move? You do Ryan for your recognizes brand? it because it's Trump one keeps saying to him on the phone, these are my the Trump people. Brand. Trump is on the phone with Paul Ryan and saying to the House Speaker, Paul, you don't understand me and you don't understand my political appeal, these are my people, I'm standing with my people. Ryan says, I don't care if they're so-called your people, you have to disavow the white nationalists. You're Trump says, you don't genius. get it, Paul, these are I mean, my people. who the hell people. knew what a special master I think one of the questions during <laughs> the period leading up to Lafayette Square Until was the president's attitude, especially now, all the us talk about authoritarianism and how strong and how far he was willing to go. I mean, there's reporting in the book about using active duty troops and can you describe what the president wanted to do as he saw protesters in washington trump's closest friends tell me remember he didn't serve in the military but he did go to new york military academy this is someone whose father loved the military loved military figures trump has followed in his father fred trump's footsteps and someone who highly regards military leaders tough guys as Trump says. Although Trump has surrounded claims, himself as president with uh, tough guys, people he sees through the prism of military gritty leadership. When so he walks across Lafayette Square, he wants to be so seen as a strong man. Himself. Not necessarily an authoritarian. People close to Trump say he never even really do you, do you uses that, the word, ben? but he wants Coach to be first. seen as tough. Yeah. Even if it shatters what do you, what do you think political about a president norms. Who uh, he surrounded himself in his cabinet, in his administration, 
with retired and current military that? officials. What does that yeah, say a about lot of people America? in the military sat up and took notice right. of Trump early on. Notice? This is someone who really likes to be with generals. He talks about the generals in a personal way. My generals, Trump says military. often when he refers to military leaders. Lafayette Square he only was wants an episode to push that around wasn't an admiration. It encapsulated who Donald Trump vengeance. is. The wannabe military type leader striding across so a square leader, in a chaotic city leader. with two military leaders <laughs> at his side, Chairman Milley That's what and Secretary Mark Esper. Being a leader, it was no coincidence that Trump wanted to walk across the square with Mark Esper, the Defense Bunsburg Secretary, General. and Chairman Milley at his side. This is the image he has cultivated. It's the image he wanted. And he even wanted to do more, right? He wanted to have active duty, 10,000 active duty troops inside Washington. When he tells that to it's his like advisors, what does he say? And how much of a break with American now. Democratic did you hear, tradition did you know is about it? That? What he's talking about and contemplating. In late yeah. May yes. and on June 1st, Washington okay, was well. on the brink of a war-like atmosphere. Minutes, we'll go the back president sitting in four. the Oval Office and considering bringing in active duty troops, lethal troops who know how to kill. The These are not National Guard troops who direct traffic. These are troops from different regiments, different parts of the military. I believe it was the Airborne. Trump wants to bring in the 101st Airborne up from Fort Bragg to come into Washington. His generals, Chairman Milley, other military advisors are saying to Trump, you can't do this, sir. Mr. President, if you bring these troops into Washington, D.C., if you bring them to Black Lives Matter Plaza, you will have blood on the streets of Washington, D.C. He holds back, but they are there. Never forget, the troops got as close to Washington as the river. They're sitting over in Maryland just waiting for the call from President Trump. Ultimately, Esper and Milley prevent Trump from making that decision. They Calling stay off Trump going in that in direction. Maryland. But Trump was this close to bringing in active duty combat troops to the streets of Washington. On the streets that night in Washington, I was there, you would have never known uh, amid the chaos that it could have been even worse, uh, that troops were ready to come in at uh, a moment's notice. Yeah. I think we should start at the moment when Trump walks out to the microphone after the election in the early morning hours. Here's to help us with what he sets in motion at that moment when he says that, frankly, he did win the election. And what was he thinking at the time? Huh. Frankly, Trump I did win didn't the election. have a coherent plan, but he knew he Genius. wanted to fight. He Genius. couldn't stand the idea of losing. Some aides were telling him, yeah, sir, it's over. Start heading back to Mar-a-Lago. Get ready for running again in 2024. Concede. Trump wanted Say, none of okay. it. Initially, he kind of acknowledged a in a few job. hours after the election that maybe he, maybe he lost. You, maybe everybody. Biden won. So that now. tune changed so quickly. The reason Thank Trump you. changes his Bye. tune in part is because he has a phone call with Bye. Rudy Giuliani, the former New York mayor, his personal Bye. lawyer. Thank Giuliani you. tells Thank Trump, keep fighting. We will right, have a legal crusade, a political crusade, to keep you in power. Trump loves the idea. Have, Even though War Trump has a campaign is, apparatus, is a, a legal hashtag. team that's ready to fight in certain states and have a court fight to a point, Giuliani wants political and legal war. And that's when Trump gives the keys, essentially, to Rudy Giuliani, not his campaign lawyers. He says to Rudy, do what you need to do to help me stay here.
And when Trump decides to start fighting, he's really going to create no this moment what, that's going to cause a lot of people to have so to decide to what are they going to do. And there's a the number of them that we'll talk about. And one of the ones that comes out very early on and goes on Fox News and is raising questions about it is Lindsey Graham. Can you describe who Lindsey Graham is and what he thinks that he's doing in this period when he's talking about election fraud and also talking to the president? Lindsey Graham is as close as anyone can be to Trump inside the Republican Party, a golf buddy of President Trump's, someone who calls the president early in the morning, late at night. He's the classic presidential confidant, a bachelor from South Carolina who loves golf and loves being friends with the president. Uh, he was close to the late Senator John McCain, and after McCain's death, Trump filled the void for Graham in a personal and political sense. Trump was someone he could work with, he felt he understood. Graham fancied himself the explainer of Trump to the rest of the Republican Party. Graham knows Trump's personality better than anyone, and he gets